Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner and we've got a very special one coming up for you. It is on the legend Mick Quinn, a great striker, a great character on the pitch, but a great character off the pitch as well. And John got to know him very well during Quinny's time on Tyneside. John, just tell our listeners what made Quinny so special. Just a unique, unique character. Of course, on the pitch, it was all about goals. But, uh, I mean, apart from that, Quinny had three loves in his life, which was birds, booze and betting, the three Bs. Oh, and he, he likes scoring goals as well. But that was it. And so many footballers, particularly of that era, were exactly the same as Quinny. They they loved the birds, they loved the pint, and they liked the horses. The point is with Quinny, he was so honest, he talked about it openly and admitted it open. Uh, it wasn't sort of anything that was done around the corner. or um, And that honesty made him so refreshing. He was the best of Scousers, with all the humour that Scousers have, the scally bit they have, the edge that they have. He represented all those three things. And, I mean, he used to say, he used to tell us, you know, his dad used to run a pub. His dad was a docker originally. And then he ran a pub in Liverpool called the Bermuda Triangle. And Quinny used to say it was called that because a lot of people went in, but nobody ever come out. They just lived there. like. And uh, so he and his dad liked a, a bet on the horses as well. So I think he was brought up in the way that he went on to live his life. Um, and the wonderful thing about Quinny as well was a, a lot of footballers can be up their own backside. They can believe their own publicity. They can believe that God's gift to the profession, etc., etc. Quinny would take the mick out of himself, literally, all the time, which was endearing. I mean, he had a load of nicknames, as we know, Sumo, because all because of his build. I mean, roly-poly guy. He was called Sumo after the Sumo wrestlers. He was called Bob because there was a guy which younger listeners won't realise, and perhaps you don't, Andrew, called Bob Carolges, who was a comedian who had it spit the dog. This was a dog he used to hold under his arm, and it used to spit the dog all the time. And he was a ringer for Bob Carolges. He looked absolutely like him. Um... And, of course, he was the, the fat B from, for the crowd all the way. And the song was, you know, he's fat, he's round, he scores on every ground, Mickey Quinn. And that's who he was. And, I mean, even the autobiography that he eventually wrote, a very funny book, was Who Ate All the Pies? And that was a, a terrorist chant. It was when he played for Coventry, which was after Newcastle, uh, against Philip, again, which was... A big derby match, of course. He was 14 stone. He was in a sky blue strip, which tends to accentuate everything. The strip looked as if it was two sizes too small for him. So um, he looked rather rotund. He was doing absolutely nothing in the game. And the, the Villa fans start chanting who had all the pies to him. And Quinny being Quinny, just laughed at that, didn't get riled. The ball come over his shoulder and he just rifled it with one shot into the top corner and said to me, Gibbo, that seemed to shut them up. And, and, but he reveled in that sort of interaction with the crowd, even when the interaction was taking the mick out of him. He loved his own fans, but equally loved riling the away fans. Mm, and I'm, I know we're going to get on to his debut against Leeds for Newcastle yeah. later on in the show because he scored four, four goals, which is basically unheard of. But is, you mentioned there how he loved that interaction and he always tells a story about uh, when he's walking around Newcastle on the days after he's signed and people are protesting against the board and people, people are asking, 
who, who, who is Mickey Quinn? I'll, I'll put it politely there. And he ends up scoring four goals, and then he, I think he runs to the crowd and he goes, well, that's who Mickey Quinn is. And it's that sort of interaction you're talking about, how he could just work off the fans. Totally, totally. Um, before I get onto that, and that's very, very true. As a player, for those who didn't see him, he was a great goal scorer, but not a great player. There was a, there's a difference. Mind you, wouldn't we like a great goal scorer now uh, to back up Callum Wilson? Um, he never played one-twos because that meant he had a run after getting given the ball to get it back. Uh, that didn't appeal to him. He, he just wanted to shoot the whole of the time. Um, but he hated. He, he got a reputation as a player that just stood on the, against the back post, leaning against the back post with a fag in his mouth, waiting for the chance to come, and he would knock it in from close range. He hated that. And in fairness to him, there was a lot more to him than that. I mean, he scored 231 goals in 512 games in the English league throughout his whole career. Newcastle, his record was 59 goals in 112 games. Terrific record. Now, anybody that wanted to pull him to bits would say, aye, but all those goals came in the second division, the Newcastle goals I'm talking about, uh, as they did with KK when he came to Newcastle. His goals were all in the second division, just because that's where we happened to be at the time. With David Kelly throughout his career, the Newcastle player, his goals were in the second division. But that was mainly because he wasn't a first division striker and managers didn't want to play him there. They wanted to play him in the second division. But it was unfair on Quinney because apart from Newcastle, before he came to Newcastle, he played for Portsmouth, he played one season in the top league, in which Portsmouth were terrible, still scored 11 goals. When he left Newcastle for Coventry, the interesting thing was that um, Coventry were in the Premier League. We don't think of them like that now, but they were in the, in the Premier League. He scored 26 goals in 67 games for them in the top division. Scored 10 in his first six games for Coventry in the top flight so he could play in the top flight he was never England class there's no question about that but the interesting thing was that Jack Charlton tried to get him to play for the Republic of Ireland now Jack if you had a pint of Guinness in a pub in Dublin Jack would say he'd qualified to play for the Republic and he'd try to get you he got a lot of English born players to play for the Republic because of their background the trouble with Quinney was that his link to the Republic was through his, his great-grandfather, who was from Waterford, and that's too distant a link for him to be able to play for the Republic, so he didn't qualify. But he often said to me, Gibbo, that would have been manna for heaven for me. The way Big Jack played his football, up and at him, get the ball at the back, forget the midfield, doesn't matter if you had... Beardsley and Waddle at Newcastle or whether you had Chippy Brady of Arsenal with the Republic, you just forget them guys. The ball comes over the head to the front man. Quinney would have loved that and he would have uh, he would have done terrific uh, in the Republic Island side, the way they played. I mean, before he come, he was an extrovert guy that lived his life as a as a lovable scully, and did plenty things wrong and paid a price. I mean, before he come to Newcastle, he did two weeks' porridge um, while he was at Portsmouth. In 1987, he was banned from driving, um, and then he drove twice while banned. Uh, and he got his collar felt and was in court. Now, it was a huge story at the time because he was the top goal scorer in the second division at that time with 21 goals when he went and he was given time. He was given three weeks, did a fortnight in Winchester, Nick. Um, and he, he was never glib about it. He was always, Gibbo, I made a massive mistake and my God, I paid the price and did I learn from it? Because it was fearsome. It was the other side of the coin. You know, he went in with a morning suit on, and uh, he then spent a fortnight in his cell uh, in prison clothes. And, of course, he was up there 
to get all the hamming of the of the local thugs in the place because he was a, a superstar footballer. He, he quickly learned. He told us. He said, "I learned that Mars bars and fags were the currency when you were in in prison." Um, the thing he remembered was getting visited in the prison. He, he only did it for night. The Pompey chairman John Deacon went and saw him, and his partner up front. At Portsmouth, Paul Mariner went and saw him. The trouble is with Deacon when he went and saw him, he said, I was looking for support from the chairman and he made it obvious that he threatened me about bad publicity for the club and he was trying to sell me behind his back to Aston Villa. So he, he, but I think he learned a great, great lesson from that period that you can step over the traces and you pay a mighty, mighty pr uh, price for doing that. Um and all his mum, when he first come to us, you know, he, he's, he's used to say to me, um, because he loved, he spent his life outside of training and playing football, either in the boogies or in the boozer. Uh, and he used, to, he used to say to me, he often used to quote to me, Gibbo, he said, remember Oliver Reed, you know, the famous Hellraiser, the actor, you say, Oliver Reed used to say, you meet a better class of person in pubs. And um, funny enough, I knew that with Oliver Reed because when I worked Fleet Street, before I come back to Newcastle to cover Newcastle United, I worked Fleet Street for a couple of years, three years, and I lived in Wimbledon. And Oliver Reed used to drink in my local pub in Wimbledon. And um, his party piece used to be that by the end of the night, he used to get up on the bar, drop his trousers, he was absolutely ratted, of course, and sing loads of songs while walking up and down the bar, scattering all the glasses, etc. Now, you would wonder how he got away with that, with the local landlord. But he got away with it because it was tolerated by the locals, and the pub was jam-packed. Because fans and curiosity guys and everything come to the pub because Oliver Reed's local to see Oliver Reed perform like that. And, um, you know, it, and he followed that sort of doctrine. And he. I was never a guy for betting and never have been. I've never been a guy that sticks money on, a, on horses. It didn't appeal to me. I wanted more out my money, more enjoyment than the two and a half minutes it took to run a, a race and your money's gone. But I was partial to the odd nightclub and uh, I made a, 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 got good friends with Quinny and we went to nightclubs. And I must stress when I'm talking about Mick that he didn't do this on the wrong nights. He didn't do it the night before a game, etc. I'm talking about after the game or midweek when there wasn't games. Don't get the wrong idea that he was, um, but and he he had some great friends when he was at Newcastle. One one of the guys um, was a guy that I knew well with him. Was called World Cup Willie. Sadly, he's passed on now. He was called World Cup Willie after the mascot that was used during the World Cup when when England were playing in the World Cup. He was actually a race course tic tac man on on the betting and. Uh, there was Big Digsy who used to knock about with Quinny and therefore with me. He was a bouncer who was a man-mountain of a guy and acted as Quinny's bodyguard, if you like, because you can imagine the attraction of Quinny in a pub playing for Newcastle United, scoring a pile of goals. People want, Some people wanted to love him and other people wanted to pick a fight with him. Uh, there was a national hunt jockey called Neil Doherty who had won the Grand National who was become a very close pal of Quinny's when he was up here um, because they loved each other. Quinny loved the horses, which was Doherty, and Doherty loved the football, which was Quinny. And they went to Hexham, Sedgefield, Carlisle, Newcastle, all the race courses. Um, and he also went, Doherty, to watch Newcastle play as Quinny's guest. Um, I mean, the games with Newcastle were legendary. He, he came he came to town to sign for Newcastle and um 
he said to his missus, his girlfriend at the time, but they had a couple of kids and they got married, Sheila, he said, this is the happiest day of my life. This is the biggest club that I could sign for. And, um, you know, um, here I am. When, when you first heard that Newcastle were in the market for Quinny, were you aware of his goal-scoring talents? I mean, what yes, did you I was. think? Yes, I was. And um, I was delighted to have him because you've got to bear in mind, we were in the second division. We, we weren't uh, at the top of the Premier League and saying, is he good enough for us? He scored wherever he went and um, he was more than good enough for us. And I had a feeling that he would be exactly what he was. I don't mean he would score four goals on his debut, but he would he would do what he did for us. Um, and he was ready made for a number nine because he played like a nine he lived in the penalty area. He didn't live outside the penalty area. He was flamboyant. He was a character. He was all that a number nine should be. And um, therefore, he ticked the boxes. And uh, he came to Newcastle and he said, I remember, Gibbo, when I, when I come and I thought, I'm going to wear the nine shirt that's been started with Gallagher and wore Jackie and, and now it's going to be... Quinny and I'm signing for this club he said and I was absolutely thrilled a bit when signed went out into town with the missus to have a walk around he said and the first thing he did was walk into a demo which was against the board uh, and the next thing he saw and he was sort of taken back the next thing he saw was a banner in the middle of the demo that was walking down Gallagher it said who the F is Mick Quinn he said no, well welcome to Newcastle um, though I've got to say that by the time he made his debut on the Saturday, they all knew exactly who McQueen was because he, he started with four goals. And um, that is as good a start as you can get. There's been the odd great start. The greatest start of all, I think, was Shaq, who scored six or whatever on his, his debut against uh, Newport. But, you know, you take... Supermac with a home debut that brought three, and yes, it was Liverpool in the top flight, and, and this this wasn't. But um, it was a quality, quality, and he was a great, great finisher, um, which was very, very important. Uh, there was a dispute. It was, at the time, there was a dispute over his transfer fee because he was out of contract, uh, at Newcastle, and um, in those days, if you were out of contract, it went to an FA tribunal to, to set the, the figure. And um, naturally, the selling club puts it, their valuation as high as possible and the buying club as low as possible. Pompey said they wanted 1.5 million, Newcastle offered 250,000. The tribunal, which always goes for something in the middle, settled for 680,000, which, as it turned out, was a bargain. But Jim Smith, the bald eagle, was the, was the manager at the time. And I, I, I saw Quinny when he come back from the... I said, how's it go? He said, hey, they, he said, the bald eagle went absolutely bevesque. He said, the chairman will go nuts, the chairman will go nuts. He'd only allowed Smithy 350,000. When Smithy said, I'm going to go for Quinny, he said, well... You, what can I offer? He said up to three hundred and fifty thousand, but that's the limit. And they offered two fifty, thinking they, they might get him for three fifty. They got him for six eighty. Equally, the Pompey chairman Jim Gregory was going round mumbling into his beer that that his club had been ripped ripped off. Um, so, but very very quickly after the first game when he scored four goals and. We went and had a few sherbets on the night after the game. And he said, I said, by the way, what did uh, the Bald Eagle say to you? Like, you know, he complained about your fee. He said, he come, the door nearly went off its hinges in the dressing room. He come in then and he went across and he said, Quinny, you're an effing bargain. He said, because he got for He said, now go out and get his promotion. And the, the sadness is that that season which Quinney always maintained was the best season of his career uh, it, that season at Newcastle, ended in the worst possible way, uh, which was 
a huge shame. Yes, I mean, he scored a lot of goals. And it was a 39 goals in all competitions, I think, 34 yeah, in the yeah. league. Yeah, 36 in the league, 39 okay, yeah. in all competitions. We were flying. We finished on um, a great run of form to end the season. But unfortunately, we finished in the playoffs. Yeah, I think we, fans know what's coming now, don't they? They certainly do. And, but at the time, we didn't know what was coming. <laughs> the ironic thing, and of course, after this, I hated the playoffs temporarily because I mean I knew it would breathe life into a season but we finished if you take the teams that were playing in the playoff we finished top of the playoff situations and Sunderland finished bottom of the playoffs therefore we played each other in the first game in the first round of games uh, we went into the game uh, Quinney and, and Mark McGee were our two forwards totally complemented each other Mark McGee could score, but he could play. He was silky on the ball. He would run, play people in. Quinny was ruthless. Give Quinny the ball inside the box and he'll score. You couldn't give him the ball outside the box because he was never outside the box. He lived in the box. Um, they'd scored 61 goals between them in the league, 36 for Quinny, and we played Sunderland in the first of the playoff the first round of the playoffs. All went well at Sunderland. We got a no-no draw. I think Budgie saved a penalty. Um, we got a no-no draw there. <coughs> Set up the game up here absolutely perfectly. At the time, I was doing a lot of talk-ins in the northeast, where in those days, I used to get one Newcastle, one Sunderland man on stage together, and the audience was split. Now, we would get rowdy at times, as you can imagine, with drink flowing and Newcastle fans one side of the pub and Sunderland fans the other. But it happened and it made good. And often, it was Gabby Dini and Quinny because they were great, both great on the microphone. They were both great goal scorers. Gabbers was a legend at Sunderland. Quinny was a legend with us. So it went well together. I got to know Gatesy well later on because he formed the original um, legends with Supermac on radio. He was the Sunderland guy, uh, Bernie Slavin was the Middlesbrough guy. Um, and it was the G-Force, Gabbiadini and Gates, that blew Newcastle away and we lost 2-0 at home. What people didn't realise at the time was that Quinney, for both those games, wasn't fit. He was carrying a hamstring strain. It was kept quiet. That was understandable because the games were so huge. Do you think Quinney was going to miss those games? No way. Do you think Smith wasn't going to pick him? No way. He played in both games. He was off the pace. It didn't work for him. And um, we got clattered. And Quinney says, ironically, you know, when you think of Mick Quinn and all the goals he scored, Andrew, he never scored in a derby match. And that includes derbies against Middlesbrough as well as against Sunderland. He never scored in a derby. That's quite staggering when you think for Newcastle in a derby match, when you think of his record up here. He said he had never felt so decimated in his life as he did after that game. He went away and he took the missus and the kids to Barbados just to get away from it all, to chill out. He said and he was lower in the snake's belly. And I imagine, given the type of character Quinny is, he would have loved that kind of pressure and atmosphere of a oh. derby game, especially with so much riding on it as well. Yes, uh, I mean, without a shadow of doubt. And uh, he had a swagger to him. As he said, it was the best season. Even after his career was finished, he said to me, the best season I ever had, not just as a goal scorer, but the best time he ever had was at Newcastle United. That is his glory time. Not at Portsmouth, not at Coventry. And bear in mind, Coventry were a top-flight team at the time. His best time was up here. The passion of the fans. He was decimated that we didn't win promotion then, and he was decimated that he had to leave Newcastle eventually. Um, the, the following season, he, he did all right, but Newcastle didn't do too good in the league, and then eventually Smith was replaced by Aldeas. And then Quinny had that had a nasty injury, didn't he? Yes. Which ruled him out for a long time. And, it, uh, and that, I mean, 
What, what was that like? I mean, did you catch up with him during that time period? Because I imagine he would have been decimated the fact that he, he didn't oh. manage to play football for so many months. You know, in a snake's belly. I mean, I remember going out with him with a pot on his, um, on his leg um, and just wanting to get out because it was all driving him crackers. I remember going to his house and ringing the bell and he says, it's on the latch, come on in. And he's lying in the bath full length in a steaming hot bath with his leg propped up out the bath with a, with a pot on it uh, and talking away about the horses and one day. He was a character that would get down, but he very quickly bounced back and therefore he was terrific in the dressing room. He was loved by other players because he was a fun guy to be around. He was reliable in terms of goals um, without a shadow of doubt. And he always said to me, you know, when he was at Newcastle, he thought Utopia had come when Newcastle appointed Kevin Keegan as manager. Um, and we all hoped Utopia had come. And it did come for us. Uh, the only apprehensions we all had, including Quinny, was that he'd never been a manager. And would he be able to do that? But for Quinny, it was like winning the pools because KK had been his hero as a, as a kid, brought up in Liverpool. He's a Liverpool fan, and Kagan was wonderful, wonderful. And um, also, he thought he, he knew Keegan quite well because A, they were both scousers, and B, Keegan loved the horses. And Quinny loved the horses. So they'd. And, Terry McDermott was a mate of two of them because he also loved the horses. So they'd met on various race courses, Quinny, Keegan and Terry Mack, and become friends. And he had a, he had a feeling that, is this perfect? We'll get on with each other. He knew Keegan was charismatic. He knew, therefore, that he would lift the club hugely. He scored goals, Quinny, so he thought, all managers love goal scorers. This is perfect for me. I'm going to be here for an eternity and we're actually going to win things. Um, it couldn't have turned out worse. Uh, and it ended this love affair. And as he said, he, always, he said to me, Gibbo, afterwards, when he came back here, after he left Newcastle, finished playing, he said, the Messiah at Newcastle ended up calling me a Judas. And that's how far they fell apart. Because we've talked about KK many times on, on these podcasts. And the thing, the consistent thing that runs through a theme of Kevin Keegan as a player and as a manager is don't cross him. Once you cross him, there's virtually no road back. It will look as if there is, but there isn't. When Bears crossed him and got subbed within 15 minutes against Villa at St James's Park, told after the game, forget about it, bye Keegan, forget about it, doesn't matter, etc., etc. Keegan didn't play him for another six months or something. Uh, it, it, once you crossed Keegan, you were dead in the water, and it proved so in this case. Just explain to our listeners just what you're on about there, because I think a lot of people will know, but some won't. And that this is about when Quinny... Um, was quoted in the press, isn't it? About correct about saying the setup um, is is a shambles. I think it was. Yeah, so he just, did. just 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 uh, going a bit he more did. detail there. I mean, it was it was madness, and I, and I told Quinny at the time it was madness from Quinny's point of view because I wasn't going to do him any favors, and it was double madness when your boss happens to be Kevin Keegan, who doesn't forgive very very easily. Um, what was happened? <laughs> He was out the side, um, went out with injury, out the side, believed he should be in the side, he would score goals. He was never more frustrated, Mick, than when he wasn't playing. And uh, here he was, not playing. And um, unfortunately, one of Quinny's traits is he's too honest for his own good. And he doesn't often watch exactly what he was saying when he said he will give an honest opinion and perhaps pay a price for it afterwards and what he was doing was talking to a guy who was a hack so he should have been on his guard 
because unless you've got a huge friendship, like when him and I talked, it was off the record. The next day, if there was something I thought might make a story and he mightn't object to him, I'd give him a bell and say, you know what we're on about? What do you feel about going on record with it? He was talking to this guy who was a reporter when he was playing for Portsmouth, down in Portsmouth. He asked him about life up in Newcastle. Quinny told how he saw it from his point of view and the guy printed the story. So, yes, Quinny said it. B, I don't think he necessarily expected to see it in print to the extent. But, I mean, he, he came out saying, Newcastle, the headlines said Newcastle are shambles under Kevin Keegan. Can you imagine the, any manager's reaction to that, never mind KK, and never mind somebody that was making this club sensational? I think what Mick did it for, because he was... What the frustration was not being in the side, and of course, KK's idea of running a side was very different. He played a lot of five sides, he didn't do tactics greatly because he just said, If you buy great players, you don't need tactics. I'm going to tell uh, Alan Shearer or Les Ferdinand how to play up front. Do me a favor, they know how to play up front, that's why I bought them. Um, so he didn't do a lot of tactics. He didn't do a lot of physical work on the training pitch. He played a lot of five-a-sides. This boiled over, and this was before Newcastle become the huge success as the entertainers in the Premier League that they did. And when he was out of order, said what he was. We went in the next day to see Keegan, and Keegan said to him, I hope you got a lot of money for that article, he said because you'll need it, because you'll never play for this club again. Um, and he did play for this club again, but not for a long time. And um, when he come to his comeback, ironically, uh, he rubbed up KK again, although it wasn't really his fault, it was John Hall's fault. Um, and that's another story he told me about. it. I mean, it was a... <sighs> It was a great game from the comeback. Newcastle were playing Portsmouth. And that's his old club that he'd come from. So he's going to be right up for that for that game, even if he's in the team every week because it's his old club and he wants to show his old club what they're missing. When he hasn't been in the team, what happened? Gavin Peacock got injured. And so he was brought back by Keegan. Now, in... In the dressing room, Keegan runs the dressing room. He ran the club, and quite rightly so, but he ran it with an iron fist. He was King Kong. And in the dressing room, before the game, KK is given his spiel, which is not particularly tactical, it's tub-thumping. You know, so that when you went out there, you ran through a brick wall from. In the middle of this team talk, there's a knock on the door, Somebody comes in, physio or whoever, and says, sorry, Gaffer, he said, uh, phone call for McQuinn. Well, you can imagine KK bristling in the middle. Phone call for K. What's this like? Is it his bookie on there? What, what's this? And he looked at the guy, and the guy said hurriedly, it's the chairman on the phone for him. So, obviously, KK thought, I can't knock the chairman back. So he said to Quinny, you better take it. So Quinny went out. Took the call from Sir John, who was upstairs in, in his box. Enthusiastic as anything, John. Loved Quinny because he was this extrovert. And he said, Quinny, back today. Delighted for you, mate. Against your old club. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll send you, I'll give you a crate of champagne for every goal you score this afternoon. Good luck, like he said, great. So he come back in the dressing room, obviously KK's bristling, but out the go to play the game. Quinney, being Quinney, scores two, scores a third one, but it's choked off offside, debatable decision, Newcastle win 3-1. They're buzzing, Quinney's buzzing, he scored twice against his old club. Get back into the dressing room after the game, goes in the shower, comes out the shower, and under his peg is three crates of the best champagne stacked under, under his peg. So 
KK says to him straight away, hey, I hope you're sharing them with the lads. And he says, yes, of course I'm sharing with the lads, you know, and he would do it, they would have a party. Lo and behold, the same guy comes in the dressing room and says to Quinny, phone call, Quinny. So KK, now the, the smoke is coming out of both ears. So it's the chairman again. So he takes a call. Uh, Sir John, fill the bits for you. Well done, Quinny. Absolutely top class. Said I'd give you a crate of champagne for... There's a crate for you, two goals. I've lobbed one in for your offside because I didn't think you were offside. Thanks a lot. That, <laughs> some, that was typical Quinny and was never going to go down well with KK. And, um, of course, before we knew where it was, Quinny was back out, back to where life was, and um, was transferred. And he had been called a Judas for saying what he said, you know, and two gold coins, taking the gold yeah. coins, which is what KK referred to, although that wasn't basically the case. And um, it was a shame because I loved what Keegan was doing for Newcastle, loved Keegan as a player, knew that Kevin, from personal experience, knew that Kevin could fall out with you very easily and put a peck lip on. Uh, and him and Quinny were always, were always going to either love each other to death or fall out big time, and they fell out big time. And it was obvious that Quinny was going to have to go um, and he went, Coventry sounds a bad move now. In fact, it wasn't at the time because it was a top fight club. And he went there and he hit the ground running. Scored 10 goals in his first six games for Coventry. Uh, but he always says that the leaving Newcastle was the hardest thing that happened to him in his life. Um, and the, the, the amazing thing is, when when you look, just to, to dwell and go back to his love and love the horses, because they, as you know, his life, once he finished football, um, the two things he did was the two things he could always do well. One is that he'd spent so much time in the bookies that he knew everything there was to know about horse racing, and he ended up training horses, as you know. And the other thing, having done all the talk-ins with me, and had the gift of the gab, was he worked for Talk Sport and was terrific. So he, he made a very decent living without being a fortune uh, by doing the things he did well. But with the horses, he used to always say to me, Gibbo, he said, the horses, he said, I, I enjoy the horses. He said, and I like putting 50 quid. Whenever I have a bet on a horse in a race, I'll put 50 quid on, on the horse. That was his standard bet. He said, the, the trouble is, he spent the whole afternoon in the betting shop. He didn't just go in and bet on one race. He spent the whole afternoon in the betting shop, uh, betting on the horse racing or the dogs. And therefore, when he went on a losing streak, he could do two grand in in an afternoon. And he could do that in successive afternoons. Now, that might not sound too bad from today's money but you've got to remember when he was at Newcastle he earned what was then very good money but it was a thousand pound a week the best wage he'd had up to that stage at Newcastle thousand pound a week but if you're doing two grand in in an afternoon in the boogies it doesn't take a mathematician to work out that he's in the claggy um, and he was and you know it was a different era I mean I said to him much later in life. Money-wise, what was it like in your day? He, start, he said, I'll tell you, Gibbo. He says, when I started off, I was apprentice at Derby. He said, and I made 16 quid a week as an apprentice at Derby. He, he went uh, to Wigan, 35 quid a week, ended up 250 quid a week. Went to Oldham, 300 quid a week. Oh, he's making big time now. Went to Portsmouth and got 950 quid a week. A grand at Newcastle, sold to Coventry because they were in the top flight and his goal-scoring record at Newcastle, 1,500 quid a week. Um, 
Now, that was big money for him, but it, it isn't big money by today's standards. And when you, um, you like a drink and you like a bet, it quickly disappears. Um, but I defy anybody that got to know Mick Quinn well that didn't love him uh, because he was lovable, as a lovable scally, as not a rogue because he, he, he wasn't in any way that one time apart when he did porridge through sheer stupidity and learned a lesson. He wasn't offensive in any way. He wasn't looking to pick fights with anybody. He was a lover, not a, a, a fighter. Um, but he was an extrovert. But we, in the way that Billy Whitehurst was an extrovert, in the way that you almost expected your centre-forwards to be extroverts, uh, especially at Newcastle. Even today, when you speak to him about Newcastle United, you know he's just infectious. He's just a, a really bubbly absolutely, and he and he gives it straight as well. He calls it as he sees that you have to. Uh, we, are, I mean, I haven't done his column in a long while. Um, I think it stopped because of lockdown. But yeah, um, when you did, you had to uh, cross out the, uh, the the swear words because he, you know, <laughs> he has got a bit of a mouth on him. But you know, th that aside, what he was saying was absolutely spot on. I think the fans loved reading it. When he was on talk sport, they loved hearing his opinion on Newcastle because he just called it as it as it as it was, and it's brilliant. See his Twitter account now; he does exactly the same. He doesn't hold anything back. He, he well, that's that's what I loved about Quinny, and that's what I love, and that's why he's value for money. Either talk sport, doing a column for the Cron, or just in patter, uh, or doing uh, talkings with me, which he's done when he was a player at Newcastle and he's come back to this area and done talkings with me up here. Mm. And his value for money because he won't go down the, the party line of telling it politically correct, supporting a mate to an extent of, of, of telling fibs and camouflage and the truth. He will tell it the way he sees it. And in a way, the big row he had with Keegan was that he was too honest. It was the way he saw it. But your early days with Kevin, there were some players, bear in mind he'd never been a manager, saying, I wonder if this guy's doing the right thing because training was never physically hard. It was, you know, for match to get fitness. It was five asides in the main. Tactics, he didn't spend time on tactics. He spent time on man management. He spent time on making you run through a brick wall. Um, he didn't do tactics. He didn't do the physical work and training. So it would be easy to say, this has got the chance of being a shambles. But it didn't become a shambles. And unfortunately, Quinny, who was right out of order and knew that, was talking from a personal point of view because he wasn't in the team. But it become irreparable. Do you think the fact that he does wear his heart on his sleeve, he did back then, he still does today, yeah. Newcastle, is that why even all these years later, he's still loved by Newcastle United? Without, without a shadow of doubt. And also, if you were number nine at Newcastle, you've got to score goals. Don't... You know, don't be creative. I'm not going to mention anybody at I, all. I was waiting for the name. I'm not, because I would like to do my first podcast where there was no mention of that particular person. But if you've got it, let me just say, if you've got a nine on your back, you're supposed to score goals. Um, and McQuinn did that. And he didn't seem to have any, have any issue wearing that number nine. Mentally, he could handle it, because it's all oh. good being a big a, a big physical build, and you, know, you can be strong yeah. on the pitch. But, you know, I mean... The person we shall not mention has a big build, but he, he just he, he never Correct. seemed to be able to mentally handle that shirt. The one thing with with Quinny, uh, you know, he, he had more front and time mouth lungs, hands. He, he he he, and that's what you want in your centre forward. You want him to be bursting out of the shirt. You want him to strut. You want him to be. John Wayne, you don't want him to be, you know, a, a, a little introvert. Equally, you've got to match that ego and that confidence with the goals, which, of course, he did just that. But I think one of the reasons that he had uh, as much strut about him is he knew he could score goals. He knew he couldn't play in the terms of being Peter Beardsley. He would tell you that he couldn't play. He didn't want to play. He didn't want to live outside the area. He always said to me, mind, that um, 
you know, he, he, he did rile himself at uh, being a guy that just scored tappings. And he talked about the best goal he scored in his life, and it, I think it was in the FA Cup for Newcastle, when he lashed the ball in. I think they were playing Derby off the top of my mind. I think Schiltz was in goal, the great Schiltz. And he got the ball 30 yards off, saw him off his line, and I was going to say chipped him, but he never chipped the ball in his life, Quinny, because he used to put his laces through and it went in like a rocket. But it lifted over the top of Schultz and hit in the back of the net and he said, Gibbo, so much for Quinny, can only score tap-ins. Tap-ins my backside. Um, but he was a, a penalty box predator in the way that Brian Clough was. The Gary Lineker, you know, uh, them sort of players are Jimmy worth every Greaves. penny. Jimmy yeah. Greaves, Gary Lineker. Great, great goal scorers who... Yes, you would get Super Mac or Jackie Milburn. It would run from the halfway line because it was so quick, etc., uh, etc. Et but he was a penalty box player, but he was in a, set, a very, very good one, and he never, ever, ever lacked confidence. Was there a part of you that wished to have seen Quinny and Keegan get on and see what it would have been like, you know, in that entertainer side, you know, that, that first kind of phase of it when Andy yeah. Cole was there. Yeah. I mean, do you think that partnership would have worked? I think it could well have worked. I think it was a terrible thing for Quinny because the, this was his golden opportunity and what was a good career, but to take it right out of contacts and blow it away in the sky. He's the one that suffered as a consequence of this, because I think he was a better goal scorer, not than his record shows, because his record shows he was a very good goal scorer, but there are people that will say he scored at a certain level and not beyond that. Um, Quinney suffered horrendously for what he said because he got blown out by Kevin Keegan and never got that sort of opportunity again. As a mate of mine, I have huge sympathy for him and I wonder what we would have seen as a Newcastle United supporter, I can hardly point any finger at Kevin Keegan when he then went on to give us Andy Cole and when he had the audacity to get rid of Andy Cole the same as he got rid of Quinney, he then produces Ferdinand and Shearer. So uh, I think KK did okay with his centre-forwards. He certainly did. But what was the feeling at the time? You know, Because the fans saw this guy who was scoring a, a bucketload of goals before the injury hit... Um, but what was the feeling when, the, first of all, it came out the relationship wasn't too great, and then obviously he was sold. Was there a bit of, what's going on here? Well, he, Mick at the time thought he could score more goals at the time he had the run-in with Keegan than the people that were in the side, like Gavin Peacock, etc., etc. Why, why KK would like Gavin Peacock is he was a relentless worker, he grafted, he made things happen, and he scored quite a few goals. But none of them were going to be there long term. And I've got no doubt whatsoever, even if that hadn't fell out, Quinny would have been replaced. Because he replaced Andy Cole, who scored 40 goals in the season and said, I can get better than him. And we said, you're joking. Now, Cole, will debate whether you could get better than him because of his goals record he got at Manchester United. But when you think of Ferdinand and then Shearer, you know, you've got to go along that the number nines in you what he was doing. Um, there's absolutely no question of that. But, you see, the, what we've got to remember is that Kevin Keegan was so charismatic as far as Newcastle United fans were concerned. Bear in mind that he'd made his reputation up here as a player when he single-handedly dragged us back into the first division over two seasons up here and was adored by the fans. He came in and almost immediately saved us from going into third division and started off where we then won the second division and we got so in a way could do no wrong. Now so while fans loved Quinney and sympathized with what was happening to Quinney, they actually backed the manager when he sold the forty goal centre forward. Andy Cole with nobody ready to step in because Ferg, uh, because Ferdy and Shearer didn't come in the next game after after Andy Cole, so 
Keegan could almost get away with doing whatever he liked because the crowd believed in him so much. And so there wasn't a rebellion about Quinny, but there wasn't really a rebellion about Coley after the first couple of days when Keegan went out and said, trust me. Mm. So let's then just finish with your summing up of Mick Quinn. A wonderful, colourful, exciting, fun period at Newcastle, epitomised by the sort of swaggering centre-forward we adore who had this safety-first valve that he could laugh at himself, whether it was his build, whether it was the style of play that he played, whether it was the betting, the birds, or whatever. I mean, in nightclub, he was as extrovert as he was in a football club. I mean, he felt that Miss World would fall in love with him. And occasionally she did, and most of the time she didn't. But um, that was him. He was lovable to be around. He scored a pile of goals. I half wish he was at Newcastle now to support Callum Wilson um, because he would score goals. And I believe he would score goals in the top flight. And he did score goals in the top flight not at Newcastle, because Newcastle weren't in the top flight when he was here. Um, but a character with great affection that I've got an awful lot of time for. It's been my privilege to know him and to work with him. And it's still a privilege to work with him now when you go on stage with him. He's still the exuberant guy that he was. And his honesty is what shines through, sometimes at his own expense. Well, there we have it, the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're also filming this for YouTube. So if you are watching on YouTube, you'll just be able to see John's face because uh, I'm on the other side of the camera. <laughs> and it's a, a privilege to say that we're going to have a very special guest on the next episode of Gibbo's Corner, which will be the Christmas special. Yep. And we're going to have Malcolm McDonald, your good friend, Absolutely. It's something we've planned for a very long time. And it's also a pleasure to say he's actually going to be doing a live talking at this very pub, but that's sold out within four hours. So um, you guys will have to listen to Give Us Corner. Um, I'll probably be about, I think we'll release it as usual on Christmas Day because we like to get into your ears when you've got your new uh, phones or iPads or whatever Santa has brought you. So watch out for that one. But please remember to like and subscribe and do pass the pod amongst your Newcastle United supporting friends and family.